This is the Dialogue Journal podcast series. Hello, and welcome to another podcast of Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought. I'm Morris Thurston, chair of the Dialogue Foundation Board of Directors, and this time we're delighted to feature Fiona and Terrell Givens, authors of the acclaimed book, The God Who Weeps, How Mormonism Makes Sense of Life. This podcast was recorded at the Orange County meeting of the Miller Eccles Study Group, where Terrell and Fiona talked about what they learned from writing their book. I think you'll enjoy what they have to say. Introducing our speakers, uh, I'm going to start with Terrell because most of you know him. He's been here before. I can kind of gloss over it. Terrell is a really smart guy who's written a lot of great books. Okay. (laughs) No, he's got a Ph.D. in literature from UNC Chapel Hill. He teaches uh, literature and religion at the University of Richmond. He has appeared as a commentator on many different TV stations, PBS, NPR, CNN. He's written some wonderful books, most of which have been published by uh, Oxford University Press, uh, When Soul Had, Souls Had Wings, uh, Carly P. Pratt, The Apostle of Mormonism with Matt Groh. Uh, he's working on a two-volume history of Mormon theology. This book that he, they're going to talk about tonight is his first one and only one with Deseret Book, and I think he's going to tell us how that came about. It's an interesting story. Fiona, who had the, uh, I guess, the good or whatever judgment to marry Terrell, when they met in a, in a class at BYU, a, a, a literature class, Fiona is a native of Nairobi, Kenya. She uh, was educated at boarding schools in England, did some studies in Germany, is fluent in German and French, and has taught French uh, as well. She has, uh, she's a convert to the church. She went on to get her master's degree in European history from the University of Richland. And she has sort of collaborated with Terrell on some of his other books, giving him a lot of ideas. But this book is one that came about mainly through her efforts, and she had a great deal of influence on this and is a co-author of this book. <coughs> Terrell and Fiona are the parents of six children, all of whom have now left home, leaving them free to come to things like this. And we're very <laughs> grateful for that. And so I'll, without further ado, I'll turn the time over to uh, Terrell and Fiona Gibbons. Thank you. Thanks very much. It's really good to be here. I've been here twice before. I think there were 11 people and 13 people the last time. <laughs> so I'm going to always make sure I add Fiona to my name when I do events from now on. Um, I'm going to, I'm really happy to be here with my beautiful wife and to um, let you hear together the story of how this, this They can't hear came you up about. here. We've got people up on this. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I'm going to start by telling a little bit about the background to the book, and then I'm going to let Fiona talk about the heart and soul of the book, and we will expand from there. We want to leave plenty of time for questions, so make note of any that occur to you in the course of our, or our speaking tonight. The, the, the book really began in um, January, a uh, year and a half ago, I think it was. I was invited to go to New York City to deliver a paper at the Bonneville Communications Conference, first annual Boncom Conference in New York. Bonneville Communications Corporation used to be a huge um, communications corporation. Today, it's just a very small kind of think tank that advises the church on things like missionary efforts and public affairs. 
they wanted me to talk about the history of how Mormons have been represented in the, in the public sphere. And so I had a kind of fun PowerPoint, and we talked about representations of Mormons from 1830 all the way to the present. And at one point in the presentation, I made the observation that um, in 1893, a kind of devil's compromise had been reached between the church and the rest of America. And uh, if Reed will talk more about this, I'm sure, in detail. But the irony of what happened in Chicago in 1893 is that one day in September, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir is given the silver medal in the International Choral Competition. And a few days later, the church is barred from making a presentation about their theology and beliefs to the World Parliament of Religion. So the moral of that story is, Mormons, you're welcome to sing and dance, but don't ask us to take your theology seriously. And I think that's pretty much the compromise that has been in effect ever since. And then I proceeded to say, and I think that's the church's fault. And uh, I was addressing a group of about 40 or 50 people who work in branding, public relations, advertising, and they said, well, how, how, what, what do you mean by that? And I said, well, the media is obsessed with things like Kolob and magic underwear because we don't give them anything more substantial to talk about. And they said, well, how can you do theology in 30-second TV spots? And I hadn't, I hadn't prepared or anticipated that question, but on the spur of the moment, I said, um, I said, well, it seems to me that 30 seconds is all the time you need to say we believe in a God whose heart beats in sympathy with human hearts, who feels our pain and rejoices in our happiness. 30 seconds is plenty of time to say we lived in God's presence as his spirit children before we came to this world. 30 seconds is enough time to say we believe that, God, that, that life is not a fall, that we are not in exile, but that this, that this life represents an ascent toward godliness. We believe that God has the capacity and the desire to save the entire human family, and that will certainly be our destiny. And we believe that heaven consists of the extenuation of those relationships that we hold most sacred in the here and now. Well, there was some conversation that ensued uh, uh, about those five ideas, and I thought that that was the end of it. But a little bit later in the day, I, I was a little jet-lagged, and not um, my filter wasn't for fully operating in my mind, and somebody asked a question about the great and abominable church of the devil, and I said, oh, you mean Deseret Book? Did <laughs> <laughs> she hear that around the corner? <laughs> and, um, and I said, you know, with my luck, there's a representative from Deseret Book here in the room, and the guy's head was literally on my shoulder. <laughs> and he said, yes, I'm sure he was personal assistant. And uh, so I thought, well, it'll be nice to get a fallout from this. And sure enough, a few days later, Sherry Dew got in touch with me. <laughs> she said, I understand you have some concerns about Desiree. But now, I want to say, to her credit, we had a wonderful, wonderful exchange. And uh, she listened and, and wanted to know why I would make such a comment, even in jest. And, and so we, we talked. And I thought it was a very productive exchange. And then it was actually subsequent to that, a few weeks later, that she called. And she said, you know, my assistant can't get out of his mind those five points that you talked about spontaneously that, that afternoon. Would you be willing to write a book for us on those five points? Now, she asked this in April of last year, almost exactly a year ago. So we're at the height of the campaign season, and I'm being just deluged, probably as Richard Bushman and others were, with media questions. And I was just so sick and tired, literally, of question after question after question about the Garden of Eden in Missouri and Kolob. And I thought this book would be a wonderful opportunity to put forward a different version of Mormonism than the one that was represented in the press. I think that we've long suffered what I call the purgatory of the Amish, which is, you know, what do you know about the Amish religion? 
Nothing, right? Except they drive horse and buggies. What does the average American know about Mormons? Well, you, you the polygamy guys, right? So this was a chance for us to set the record straight. So I started this book, and, and I didn't even get through the first day of working on it when I realized, wait a minute, all of these really beautifully articulated ideas really were, were, were given birth by my wife in conversations that we have had over the years. And so I asked her if she would collaborate with me on this, on this book. And so we wrote it together. And it was one of the great, great joys of, of our lives together. And uh, the way she describes it is, uh, it, it's, we felt as if we were carried suddenly by a tidal wave to an unknown destination. And when we arrived on the shore, the book was in our hands. Um, we, we, we wrote it in five, five weeks, I think. And uh, it was just a very, a very joyful and wonderful experience for us. And the response has been very un unexpected in many regards. And so we're both going to talk a little bit more about that response and what that has taught us, as well as what we learned in the course of writing the book. And Fiona is going to start by talking about the, 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 the germinal idea that lent itself to the title of the book, as well as its essence. Mm -hmm. You're done. Yes. Well, actually, I'm not going to talk about that at the moment, but I will. Um, but I, I think what the title of this um, this evening's program is, you know, uh, what did we learn um, from writing the book? And I, 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 we both of us were a little concerned about how the intellectual, the Mormon intellectual community would respond to this book being published by an author um, who publishes primarily with Oxford, publishing with Deseret, and Terrell isn't anyone who feels this way about Deseret. And um, the, the response from the intellectual community was instantaneous, and it was overwhelmingly positive. I mean, right out of the block, Ben Parks came out with this incredible um, blog saying, you know, this is, this is a brilliant book, it's fantastic, and it's fantastic that Deseret Book is publishing something like this. And then Times and Seasons came out again. Um, Julie Smith said, you know, just, just read it. You know, just, just read it. And uh, we, were just, we were just overwhelmed by the support that we got from the intellectual community because that is the community with which we are most familiar. And we actually felt, felt we would get some pushback um, from them, and, and we didn't. Uh, the, the other thing that... That has really surprised us. You know, people ask us, who is your audience for this book? Um, I, I have felt that my, my primary uh, purpose with Terrell's other books was tone. Uh, I'm a convert to the church. Um, I am very aware of red letter, red flag words. And um, his mentor, Eugene Falk, at... Um, can you hear me upstairs? I'm so sorry. I have a difficult time projecting. Um, when, when he was struggling through Terrell's dissertation, he said, Terrell, I, I really can't keep up with his intellectual gymnastics. You need to write with such clarity that a 10-year-old will understand what you're reading. Please take this home to your wife and have her read it. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was my official designation to dumb down Terrell's work. And I've done that with sort of didn't do quite so well with Viper, but it, when it came to By the Hand of Mormon, I, it was just, I really wanted this book to be a book that um, wouldn't shut down people who are not members of, of, our, of our faith. And so I would, I would you know, there are giveaway words like the church, bum, that's a giveaway award, the author is Mormon. 
you know, the way you talk about Joseph, the prophet Joseph Smith, and suddenly, you know, I, I just scrubbed everything out there. So the first question that Terrell got with By the Hand of Mormon is, are you Mormon? And that's really the tone I wanted for this book. I, I, I felt that what we were talking about is something that was talked about originally and propounded originally by Joseph and the founding fathers of our faith tradition, but have been lost, quite honestly. I think if you were going to go out and ask people, you know, is sin a good thing in our faith community, everybody's going to say, well, one, we don't sin. We just make bad choices, you know, turn left instead of right. Um, and, you know, and, and for me, coming from a very strong Catholic faith tradition, from a, a Catholicism that I love and I revere, and it, it cost me personally to, um, to move from my Catholic faith tradition to Mormonism, the place of Christ, and sin and the atonement is huge for me. So I have real issues when we steamroll over Good Friday to Resurrection Sunday and we're just happy people and really optimistic and we don't know what tragedy is or what sin is. And uh, so, so th- th- those were sort of the germs of, of, of that particular thing or, or universalism. I mean, how many of you here have been taught that you will be relegated to a kingdom in which you will be stuck and you are not allowed visitors. Well, you know, that sounds like prison to me. And, and it, it flies in the face of what Joseph was saying originally, that there will be eternal progression. You can't progress eternally if you are stuck somewhere. And then the other thing that, that really struck me is that if this is the Church of Christ and we, we are accumulating truths, um, then, then they will resonate. And, and there, there are historical moments in all of Christianity. Um, and, and the Book of Mormon and the Gold Plates are a historical moment, but they do not define what we are as Christians. And, um, and, and, and for me, this was absolutely essential that we go back to what is core in our religion and Finding those five things in one faith tradition, they are found everywhere in different faith traditions. But we own them. We own them in a way that nobody else does. And I'm bragging about us right now, but it is extraordinary. When I was um, first, well, it was many, I don't know, my encounter with Enoch 6 and 7 was pivotal. When I, I read Enoch 6 and 7 and, and that Moses encounter... Moses, Moses, darling, thank you. Moses 6 and 7, <laughs> thank you, my sweet. And that encounter with Enoch and God, the first time I, I knew there was something important there. I knew this was a pearl of great price. I didn't understand how it was. And it was, it was my family. It was raising my children. It was struggling with my prodigal son who was on meth. It was, it was all the heartache and the pain of struggling through these issues and what was my relationship with God and what was his relationship with his son and, 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 and all of these things combined to make me actually analyze the text, engage with it much more seriously. And then it was the verb. I'm always big about verbs. I'm a very close reader of the text. And so we have this extraordinary encounter of Enoch 
And the important thing for us to understand as LDS is that Enoch was talking to God the Father. Regrettably, we conflate both God the Father and God the Son into one amorphous whole. And we actually have no idea who's talking because they just seem to be, you know, delegating, you will, you know, here, there. So we really don't know, which I think is incredibly unfortunate. But in Moses 6, it is very clear because he says, man of holiness is my name and my son is the son of man. It's really important that we understand that Enoch is talking to God the Father because it is Christ who has asked us to pray to him. And I'll, I'll bring out a little bit about my Catholicism, why I've moved and why I think this position is tenuous. But, but Enoch asks God and he looks at God and he notices that God is weeping. And it is quite obvious to Enoch that these are not happy tears. And he's like a seminary student. You can feel the whole earth starting to shake beneath his feet. So wait a minute. My seminary teacher told me that heaven was a happy place. And you are the author of heaven. How is it possible that you can weep? And it's three times. And he uses the verb can, not why. How is it possible? And then you feel he's threatened. His whole identity is threatened. His relationship with God is threatened. And Zion has already been lifted up. So you would think he knows God pretty well. And he actually does. He said, thou art from all eternity to all eternity. Thou art merciful. And he starts a litany of attributes that he knows God has. But this one he does not know. And I'm using know in the biblical sense. Experiential. And he struggles with it. He asks him three times. And then do you remember what happens? This extraordinary thing where you have that, that verse of Enoch moving to God's position. He moves over and Enoch knew. And his bowels swell wide as eternity. All eternity shakes and he weeps. The extraordinary thing about the Pearl of Great Price is that most people outside of our faith tradition say it is our Achilles heel. It is not. What did Joseph say the Book of Mormon was? It is the keystone. What is a keystone? This isn't a rhetorical question. Please answer me. It's the top of the arch. What is its function? Right. Okay. It is not foundational. It is not the foundation. Okay. This is the foundation. The pearl of great price. And for me as a Catholic, what I was concerned about, what moved me from Catholicism to Mormonism was not Joseph Smith. Not the Book of Mormon, which, quite frankly, I felt rather like my Mark Twain about it. <laughs> I really did. Um, you still do. I do. <laughs> it's okay now, because I understand that Mormon was suffering from major PTSD, so that explains a lot. <laughs> so it's okay. I understand. But, um, but in, in the Catholic faith tradition, Christ had been completely obscured by a myriad of saints, and by his mother. I prayed the rosary with my mother every week. And there are ten, there are, there's one Our Father, it's repeated five times, and there are ten Hail Marys. 
for five. So it's 50 times. We are praying to the Virgin Mary as an intercessor. She has completely replaced Christ. And the question is why? Joseph said that in order to exercise faith into salvation, we needed to know three things. One, that God existed, and two, his correct character and attributes. He also said that many plain and precious things had been taken out of the scriptures. Now, we all know that nature causes a vacuum. Okay, so if the plain and precious things are taken out, they would be replaced. Anybody cursorily going through the Old Testament is going to have difficulty with it. If you go at any deeper level, you are going to have difficulty with a God who is presented with the Old Testament. If you don't, you're not reading it closely enough. <laughs> you know, and so so in the in the in the in the um and in in the Old Testament we have a God who is distant, aloof, angry, and genocidal. And and, and then we have his son. Okay, and, and he says some un- unfortunate things in the New Testament that actually remind us of this father. So how much of the son, of, of the father is in the son? Of course we would go to his mother. Of course we would. You know, when, when young men are dying on the battlefield, to whom are they calling out? Their mothers. They're not their fathers. So Mary was the obvious substitute but it is not Mary who saves, it is Christ. And so for me, this was absolutely pivotal that, that the, in the Pearl of Great Price, we understand that the God we worship, his defining character and attribute is vulnerability. And I learned this from watching a Bruce Willis. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm really I'm really promiscuous in my crushes on guys Terrell is not Terrell fell in love with what's her name I don't remember oh <laughs> what's her name Fiona, I think it's my turn Fiona I know <laughs> oh come on who has seen Lady Hawk thank you Michelle Pfeiffer always has loved Michelle Pfeiffer I just you know Anyway, so I'm watching this, this movie, and it's about African genocide. I don't recommend it. I was born in Africa. It was important for me to watch. But halfway through the movie, I just said, okay, God, I do not want to be a God. I'm just saying it right here. I will, I will not expose myself to this horror on a personal, familiar, societal, and global basis. What is wrong with you? If I were a god, I'd take my library and I'd go to the Seychelles and I'd hole up with my books and be happy. And so that forced me, it made me very silly, that this film forced me to confront my conception of God. And it it was like my children, my son, this film, everything just contracted into me asking the really important question. Who are you, really? Because, because I, 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 I can't worship this. And then when I discovered his vulnerability, it just flowed through me that this God, who could have chosen another way, who could have gone to some beautiful utopia and lived there in blissful solitude forever, chose to love us 
and in so doing made himself vulnerable. This is Freud said. Freud knew it. As soon as you love, you make yourself vulnerable. Everybody in this room has felt the cost of love. And for me, that made him our God. And we own him. He's there in the pearl of great price. He's there, deserving of emulation and adoration. He rocks. Terrell needs to speak now, and I need to stop and sit down. <laughs> <laughs> What I'm going to do is shift gears a little bit now. I want to talk about a different aspect, a different aspect of the book. Um, the, some of you have read the book and may remember that we, we have these five chapters on these five, what we call the five fundamentals, but we frame the book, we bookend it with an introduction and an epilogue to talk about doubt. And um, I, I've said this before in other contexts, but if I have a spiritual gift, and we're told that everybody has a spiritual gift, I think mine is doubt. And that may seem. I'm speaking up. And, and that that may seem like a peculiar thing, but you know, in doctrine and when the gifts of the spirit are enumerated, doubt is enumerated as one of the spiritual gifts. Right? We're told that to some is given to know, and to some is given to only believe. So that lack of a capacity to know is called a spiritual gift in the doctrine and covenants. And I, I personally feel that the church at this moment, the church culture, is on the near end of a seismic shift in the way faith is understood and treated. And if you needed any conclusive evidence, I'll give you what I think is some, but to my mind the conclusive evidence was Elder Holland's talk in, in, on, on conference. When for the first time in my memory, we had a leader of the church from the tabernacle say, it's okay not to know. And one of my greatest concerns with cultural Mormonism is what I call the rhetoric of certainty. There is a de facto exclusion from the pulpit of those people who don't feel they can stand up and say, I know. And so I think one of, one of the reasons why our book has met with the kind of response that it has is because we, we dignify and legitimize that, that perspective and that, that stance. Now, I don't think doubt is something to be celebrated, but I do think that it's the precondition for actual meaningful choice. And, and that's what I, I try to talk about in the, in that, in the first chapter of, of The God Who Weeps, that I don't believe that if evidence for anything is overwhelming, then we are freely choosing to believe that. We certainly don't freely choose to believe the law of gravity. There's too much evidence. And no matter how much you try, you can't choose to believe in the Easter Bunny because there isn't any. And so I think that faith operates in that realm where it is possible to choose a reasonable belief in the face of reasonable doubt. And I think that that is a kind of faith that is highly valued of the Lord because it represents an act of the will, a gesture of faith in which we choose to embrace Christ and what he offers us. So what I want to, to, to talk about now just briefly are, are some of the, I guess, some of the tools that I think we haven't made enough use of in dealing with the problem of doubt and uncertainty in our own lives and our own faith and testimonies. And um, 
one of them is is uh, is first of all, I think it's it's necessary to recognize that some people fall victim to what I call the too tender heart, the too tender heart, and I think that this is best represented in the Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky, which I'm guessing not everybody in the room has read. But it's a wonderful story, uh, in part, about the contest between affirmation and denial that takes place between the, the agnostic Ivan and his brother Alyosha. And in the most famous scene in this book, which is the scene where Ivan refuses to countenance a universe in which there are innocent children who suffer, we realize that it's not that he doesn't believe in God. It's that he can't accept a God who would willingly create a plan in which that much innocent suffering is necessary. And I think that when the Lord prayed that his disciples wouldn't be overcome by the world, my sense is that that's what he may have had in mind. Not that they wouldn't succumb to evil, but they wouldn't succumb to despair in the face of a world where there is so much suffering. And so I think that one of the first things we need to recognize is that that can be an enemy of faith, an instigator of doubt, that I think has a certain value to it. It's not a rebellion against God and the good. It's perhaps an excess of sympathy that can't accommodate the tragic nature of the universe in which we live. And I think that that was the moral of the Garden of Eden story, right? Is that Eve is given a choice between two competing goods. It's not about good versus evil. Are you going to choose the fruit of the tree, which is good, delicious, and makes you wise? Or are you going to choose safety and and obedience? And that's the nature of the universe. We always choose between competing goods. Choosing between good and evil is an easy matter. Um, a, a, a second point that I've, I've tried to make that I think has been an outgrowth of this book is that, is that people need to stop whining about Mormon culture because there's no they there. Too many people talk as if there's this boogeyman that looms over us all, ready to condemn us or shut us down if we don't trod the way of conventional orthodoxy. And I think we need to be reminded that, that, that we are the church. You know, one of my favorite stories is, is Bishop, uh, is it Woolsey? Woolley, Bishop Woolsey, the old uh, Salt Lake 13th Ward Bishop, who had uh, one of his many, apparently many, uh, encounters with Brigham Young that was less than friendly. And after Brigham Young had reamed him up one side and down the other, and he told him he could now leave his office, and as he began to leave, Brigham Young said, I suppose you'll now leave the church, Bishop. And he turned around and said, well, I would if it were your church. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, I mean, can you imagine the remarkable revolution in, in attitudes within the church if that were all of our attitude? This church doesn't belong to the brethren. It doesn't belong to the prophet. It doesn't, it's, it's the church of Jesus Christ, and we all participate in that body of Christ. And so I think that we need to be more proactive in ourselves doing what we can to instigate a return to those fundamentals that were so important to Joseph Smith that have sometimes been obscured in a kind of cultural right, accretion that has come to us through the centuries. Um, uh, another thing that this book taught us and that, and that um, we think is, is just an, in, an essential ingredient in, in anyone's spiritual life is we have to follow the admonition of Robert Frost, who said you have to find your own watering place. You have to find your own watering place. I think it's really significant. For much of my adult life, I thought it was a tragedy, but now I'm not sure that it was a tragedy. 
that in an early version of the Articles of Faith, Oliver Cowdery made reference to the importance that the church placed on a life of holiness, of acquiring holiness. When Joseph worked out his version, he dropped that, and he instituted instead an article of faith about authority, about proper authority. And I thought, wouldn't it be nice if we emphasized holiness more than authority? But I think maybe the lesson that we're supposed to gather from that is that holiness is a personal pursuit. As my son likes to say, the church is not a Swiss army knife. (laughs) It's not a tool for every need and for every purpose. So sometimes Fiona and I get the question, well, if these truths are universal, if Joseph was an inspired eclecticist, if he's just gathering the church back out of the wilderness, why do we need Mormonism? And one answer that I propose is, well, Mormonism, Mormons are the modern-day Sadducees. They're the commission that, that was given to Joseph Smith and that he has passed on is to be guardians of the temple. These truths may be found everywhere, but the capacity to take the human family and bind them together and to their God eternally is a function of priesthood powers and priesthood keys. And those only unfold within the precincts of the temple. And that is the reason for the gathering. Joseph Smith was very explicit about that. We need to gather everybody together to have sufficient resources to build a temple to our God and to instruct them in the things of God. And if we keep that front and center and remember that the rest doesn't matter and that holiness is my personal responsibility and that we will find a watering place in many better, superior formats than Gospel Doctrine Lesson Manuals, then I think we all will be a lot better off for that. And, you know, many people have remarked on this amazing array of voices that we bring into this book, The God Who Weeps. Well, those are all quotations that we have culled over the years from our watering places. Those are people that we think the Lord was referring to. In section 49, verse 8 of the Doctrine and Covenants, when he sent Joseph on a mission to to the Shakers, And he mentioned incidentally to Joseph, he said, by the way, you know, the whole world lies under sin except holy men that I have reserved unto myself that ye know not of. Now that's an amazing statement. Joseph is his appointed prophet, but the Lord is saying to him, there are holy men and women who walk the earth that you know nothing about. And similarly, the allegory of the woman in the wilderness where the church is taken into, into the wilderness in Revelation chapter 12 and there it is nurtured of the Lord until such time as it will be gathered back out of the wilderness. So what that means is that scattered throughout time, scattered throughout place and culture are holy men and women who drink at the source of divine inspiration, who have much to teach us and much with which to inspire us. And we need to take seriously the admonition to seek wisdom out of those books, which are not the scriptures. Because when the Lord refers to scriptures, he calls them scriptures. And when he wants to call them books, he calls them books. And then, um, finally, uh, we, we need, I think, to have a healthy suspicion of our own capacity to embrace false paradigms. Um, and my favorite story in this regard is the story of B.H. Roberts. <coughs> you know, in, in, uh, in about, I think it was 1920... There was a member of the church working in Washington, D.C., who had received questions about the Book of Mormon, a list of five problems that this non-Mormon encountered in the Book of Mormon. He wrote to his friend, and he said, how do you address these five problems? Most of them were anachronisms. They mentioned silk and steel and 
and and uh, I can't remember what else. Um, yeah, horses. And so the letter was forwarded to the church presidency. They gave it to their resident Book of Mormon authority, who was, of course, B.H. Roberts. And they expected a reply the next day or two. Weeks pass, and they get nothing. They contact B.H. Roberts. He says, I need a little more time. They give him a little more time. Still nothing. And finally he says, I think we need to have a meeting. And so they actually do. They convene a two-day meeting with a full quorum of the Twelve and B.H. Roberts, in which effectively he says, these problems run more deep than I had anticipated. Now, the four of them he was able to pretty much dismiss. You know, translation theory, if you understand anything about translation, you know, you give modern-day equivalents, the best equivalents. So, you know, steel and, and, and scimitars, those aren't real problems. But the problem was languages. B.H. Roberts said, I don't know how to account for the fact that if they came here and settled the Western Hemisphere speaking Hebrew, a mere thousand years later, there's everything from Patagonian to Aztec to Navajo. Languages don't evolve that fast. They don't mutate that fast. Fiona's favorite author is Julian of Norwich. She wrote 800 years ago, and she can still read her. Language doesn't mutate like that. B.H. Roberts went to his grave disturbed by his inability to resolve that contradiction. Many people think he lost his testimony and never recovered it. I don't think that he did, but I think he did lose a certain assurance and confidence in the Book of Mormon. Well, what was his paradigm? He assumed, as almost everybody did at that, at that time, that the Book of Mormon described a Western Hemispheric civilization that went from Tierra del Fuego to the Arctic Circle. right? And then you've got people like John Sorensen who do an informed, careful, meticulous reading of the Book of Mormon and demonstrate what? Oh, the lands occupied by the Book of Mormon and described in the Book of Mormon occupy, take a, they, they, they encompass an area about the size of Idaho, 200 by 300 miles. Once you localize the Book of Mormon people within that region, you'd be amazed at how many problems just disappear. So my point is that if you can be the church's resident authority on the Book of Mormon, a 70, a man of immense learning and intelligence, and still operate on the basis of a completely erroneous paradigm, how many times do we get ourselves into trouble because of assumptions that we aren't capable of challenging ourselves? And so that's where I think faith has to balance doubt. And there have to be times when we recognize our own limitations and, and wait upon the Lord. And I'm going to let Fiona give us some concluding comments. And then we'll have time for questions. Um, I, I do feel I hope you don't feel I'm shouting at you I just feel I need to project Am I, uh, are we good? <laughs> okay. um, going back to the Pearl of Great Price because it's, it's so amazing point. I, I wanted to read this because um, every, because everybody thinks that it's our, our Achilles heel but you know the words <laughs> will speak to you out of the dust well at Qumran some really extraordinary manuscripts were fa- found and I want to read this to you um, they were just discovered in the 1940s, and the Pearl of Great Price, and I'm no good with numbers. When was that, 1832? Well, parts of 1830, parts of 1835. Okay, all right. Okay, so this is from the Apocalypse of Paul. Uh, and, and how often is Enoch mentioned in the Bible? Anyway, no, exactly. But Joseph felt that he was so important, that was the name he assumed, Enoch. Um, this is in the Apocalypse of Paul. Enoch is cheerfully embraced and kissed, and then he is asked, Brother, why do you weep? 
And again, sighing and lamenting, he said, We are hurt by men, and they grieve us greatly, for many are the good things which the Lord has prepared, and great is his promise, but many do not perceive them. Weeping Enoch. And this is in one of the Enoch texts. There are three extant. extant. This is Enoch 1, the first and second vision. Enoch, oh, that my eyes were a fountain of water, that I might weep over you. I would pour out my tears as a cloud of water, and I wouldn't rest from the grief of my heart. And after that I wept bitterly, and my tears did not cease until I could no longer endure it. But they were running down because of what I had seen. I wept because of it, and I was distressed. Is this not so cool? I mean, Joseph was saying this. We have this weeping Enoch, a hundred and, oh, I don't know. A lot of years. Yes, a lot of years before these texts were discovered. And so, you know, not only are we recognizing the truths and other faith traditions and, you know, especially the apostasy. I mean, you know, the, the injunct- uh, we've heard, you know, wh- when are we going to produce our own Shakespeare's, Beethoven's and Mozart's and God is saying, I already did. You know, and, and, and they're there for our edification, for, for us to learn these, the best books, they are there, God gave them to us as instruction. <coughs> but one of the things that I think that we bring, not only is this, the Pearl of Great Price, the Vulnerable God, which I think is absolutely crucial. I think all of his characteristics and attributes from that, but is our conception of Eve. Really, this is radical. I mean, e- ever since the very beginning, she has been articulated as the weak one, the one who fell. And how have women suffered as a result? I mean, why is a woman raped? Because she's wearing the wrong things, she's in the wrong place, at the wrong time. It's always our fault. Everything is our fault until we come to Mormonism's conception of Eve as the heroine of the human race. I mean, she is actually addressing the issue. Where is Adam? Well, I'll tell you where he is. He's off in the other part of the garden playing computer games. I mean, really. It is Eve who is actually addressing the issue. And she looks at it and Terrell's, Terrell's gone over it. But, but it's important that we understand she's analyzing the fruit. It is nutritionally valuable. It is aesthetically pleasing. And this is what tips her over. It will make her wise. Okay, Solomon is known for what? And, and God loved Solomon. He loved him so much. He said, Solomon, you just pick any gift you want, any of the treasures I have. What did Solomon pick? Wisdom. There's something really important about wisdom. And it was that which tipped Eve over into, yes, we will take this fruit. I mean, what courage. And you have to ask, was something not resonating in the back of her mind? This is not going to be good. This is not going to be good. The courage that it took for her, and she has been vilified for centuries. And we bring her back. And, and, and in the Pearl of Great Price, she joins Adam in this wonderful hymn. Were it not for our transgression, we should never have known, known, experienced good from evil. She understood that the experiential knowledge was important. 
They must have had a theoretical knowledge, otherwise they could not have been culpable. What they lacked was experiential knowledge. Sin is important. We substitute pain for sin and then we all understand what we're talking about. It is important for us to go through the sorrow that we may understand the joy of our redemption. So that is the other thing that I think that Mormonism brings to the table, which is so salvific. And I just want to conclude with, um, with Terrell that um, this has been one of the most wonderful experiences of our lives. We are so grateful to you for taking the time to come out this evening. You are busy people with busy lives. And for us to be able to express our joy uh, with you about these, um, the, 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 these five resonant things that we, we, we feel you can take and, and share because it's, it's difficult. You know, how do you say to your neighbor, okay, there's this kid who was 14, there were gold plates, and he's illiterate. Don't ask me how. But anyway, it really wasn't the Urim and Thummim. Actually, it was a peepstone in the bottom of a hat. But it gets really confusing. <laughs> and history's messy. You know, it, it is messy. Our history is really messy. We're just coming to discover it, it, it at, that it is. But it's okay. History's supposed to be messy, and if it's not, there's something wrong with it. So embrace it. Embrace our messy history, because it's okay. We're just like everybody else. But our theology, the theology rocks, and that resonates, and we are so grateful. Thank you so much for giving us the time this evening. to Mariology and it being basically a Latin Christian tradition, I would trace it more to Augustine and particularly his, his conflict with Pelagius. But right. putting that aside, um, when you were working on this, I haven't read the book, and so I'm only going off of the title and, and, your, and your comments this evening, but it sounds to me like there's an influence in open theism and maybe some of Hartshorn's process theology. Is that the case? And are you just taking some of those ideas and then wanting to introduce them to a Mormon audience? No. I mean, th there may be some overlap. You're absolutely right. But what we have done is we have gone to the earliest records of Joseph, Hiram, Talmadge, the, the great scholars, like the founding fathers of Mormonism, and we find them articulating all of these things. Um, the fact that Joseph, that the, the, the Pearl of Great Price, of which we speak, was a production of Joseph Smith, that he articulates this idea of a vulnerable God and a weeping Enoch. Um, the, the, the fact that um, the Universalists were the ones who were first attracted to Mormonism in the first place because of the Universalist teachings. We, we feel that those are there in, within Mormonism itself, and it's unlikely that Joseph would have been influenced by... Um, by Augustine, let alone... Well, yeah, but especially... Yeah, open the theism and process theology exactly. both have a lot in common with right. early right. Mormon, especially with Orson Pratt and B.H. Roberts. Mm -hmm. So those parallels are there. From the, the verses concerning the weeping to those that take us back to uh, 
the floods and the fierce anger is only about three or four verses. I, for one, would like to, you know, to maintain an even strain for a little while longer. Um, I wonder what your reaction is. From these verses that describe God weeping, um, to the verses where God is described as once again uh, sending floods and having fierce anger, it's only about three or four verses, which is not a very great divide between the two moods, as it were. And I, for one, would you know, it'd be nice if deity could maintain an even strain here. Right? But you know, it just—it it didn't happen. Right? Well. You know, when your children do really stupid things, do you get angry? At um, some point, I give up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I can't presume to be able to explain all of the contradictions that we find in describing God's character in the Old Testament or in the Pearl of Great Price, but it seems to me that if we, if we accept infinite love and vulnerability as his cardinal characteristic then it's possible to make sense of his anger in light of that. And I would compare it to the anger that we feel of frustration that our children stupidly and rebelliously persist in those things that incur pain. We think one of the most important textual elements of that description of God's vulnerability is that when he does answer Enoch's question and says what it is that actually is the source of his tears, he uses the word misery. He doesn't say it's the wickedness that makes me cry. It's not the rebellion that's making me cry. It's knowing the misery that awaits them. And so I think that that's the idea to which we have to give priority in understanding the nature of God and his emotional reactions as described in anthropomorphic terms. And I'd just like to add, you know, Terrell use, was using the regal we there. And um, so this is where we differ. No. Well, well sort it. of, yeah. But um, I, I, I have been profoundly influenced by Margaret Barker's work, and she addresses the wicked. It's really, really interesting because if you ask yourselves, who are the wicked? Who would you say was wicked? I mean, there are a lot of people in the outside community who would look at us and actually call us wicked. I've been called wicked. I've been called wicked by people within our faith tradition. <laughs> so, so, I mean, who are the wicked? And, and, and for me, I think the wicked is Satan and the rebellious. I love Brigham Young. Brigham Young had this, well, I need to qualify that. Brigham Young and I would have had serious issues on a number of topics, but this one we would have agreed on. Brigham Young said that he, he felt that all men and women desire to do good and to be good. And, 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 and for me, I would, not categor- I would not put humanity into the category of the wicked, quite frankly. Um, I, I, think all, I, I think being the wicked puts you into that category of you see Christ, you feel his redeeming love, um, and, and you experience all of it, and you would still crucify him. I don't know of any human being who would actually respond to love in that manner. So for me, I see the wicked as Satan and the fallen ones. The rest of us do dreadful things to each other, either willfully or not. But I, I, know, I know friends of mine who have a child who is a sociopath, who is serving uh, quite a number of years um, because... Now, is, 
as a child, she said she remembers him never being able to differentiate between stealing a cookie from the cookie jar and mass murder. He simply was not able to differentiate, distinguish between the two, that there are hierarchies of evil. So if you see what I mean, I think most of our, dis- our dis- ability to make decisions and choices are clouded by environment, hormones, chemicals, a, a host of, of other things. So I, I would hesitate to put us into the, into the category of the wicked. I have a really pedestrian question. I love the book, but what compelled you to use endnotes rather than footnotes? This is a, a book uh, whose genre may be hard to define. Um, it's, I mean, I have a two-volume history of Mormon thought coming out that tells the same story but with footnotes. <laughs> in other words, we weren't writing for an academic crowd, and we thought that footnotes interrupt the narrative flow. But because they're included as endnotes for those who want the sources, they're available. And it's also worth pointing out that increasingly in crossover books that are written by academics for a popular audience, this method of, of notation is, in, is, is more commonly used. Okay, so I'm shifting my paradigm here. Um, some because if I believe, I do believe that God is all-knowing and um, and I, I don't know about all-powerful, but we're going to say all-knowing for a minute. And so I often challenge people who say to their young children, oh, don't do that, you'll make Heavenly Father so sad. And, um, and my argument is, <clears throat> I don't want children having the burden of thinking that they are making God sad, that that's, you know, what they then carry with them. And, and I'm trying to figure out how to shift my paradigm and still have people back off of that a little bit. I'm a parent educator. I do a bunch of stuff with, you know, families. And so how, how do I back off of that? Because I really love the weeping stuff um, and, uh, as you presented it. And I'm, I'm just I'm trying to get my head around both of these. You yeah, well, I'll, I'll say something then, Fiona can. I, I, I'm not sure that, you know, guilt has a bad name. <laughs> I'm not sure that it's always always necessarily the wrong place to go. I, I would say in part it depends on how old your children are. You don't want to traumatize them. But on the other hand, it's important to know that in the history of the idea of passibility, that's the theological term for this subject. Can God suffer human emotions? That's the question of divine impassibility. And it's really, really important to point out just as a historical fact that when Joseph Smith is told in the first vision that the creeds are an abomination... That's not talking about the Nicene Creed. That's not talking about the Athanasian Creed. It's talking about the Articles of the Church of England and the Westminster Confession. And there's abundant reasons I could give for why we know that's the case, mostly because Joseph and Oliver Cowdery repeatedly were invoking those creeds as the problem with Christianity. And what is it that the Westminster Confession and the Articles of England formally state? We believe in a God without body, parts, or passions. Now, I had a Methodist theologian stand up and argue with me at a conference because I dared to say that Joseph Smith was teaching impassibility or passability way ahead of his time. And he said, oh, the Methodists believed that in the 1700s. And I said, are you familiar with your own Methodist creeds? And he got very embarrassed. And he said, well, we don't really pay attention to the creeds. <laughs> well, the Methodist creed uses that language. It did all the way until a few years ago it, it was taken out. So my point is that, that Joseph Smith was way ahead of the curve. 
Any standard history of theology will say impassibility was the rule until the late 19th century. And here's the reason why. C.S. Lewis put it in popular terms. C.S. Lewis said, do we really want to believe in a God whom we can hold hostage? If he cries over our sins, then I can make God miserable by just being evil. And he said, that would be, that's just too horrible to contemplate. And you know what? We contemplate it and we accept it because that's what Enoch teaches us in Moses 6 and 7. So I don't think we can get around the the reality of that teaching that our actions do impinge on God's state. He rejoices when we're righteous. He weeps when we're not. And that's not metaphorical. So at some point, I think we need to learn that that is in fact the case. Fiona, do you want to? No, 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 it's beautiful, darling. Thank you. Okay, so um, <clears throat> I, recently I've been really nerding out on William Dever, Did God Have a Wife? And uh, <laughs> Michael Coogan, God and Sex, What the Bible Really Say? And when they talk about God having... Both of these authors, it's, it's really neat because when they're talking about Genesis, they're reading it almost like, as if it was a King Follow Discourse. They're talking about multiple gods and, and also... Um, and Deaver and Coogan both talk about God being married and there being a male and female divinity um, and that, you know, the Bible's really, the Old Testament's really just revisionist history and they kind of edited out the Divine Mother and all these sorts of things. And then you were talking about Mary, how Mary takes a huge part in, in, in Catholicism and that, you know, when there's a vacuum, it gets filled with something. Do you think Mary may have filled that vacuum in Catholicism because... The Divine Mother was edited out centuries no, before. No, Margaret Barker thinks so. Um, Diva's uh, book is more anthropo- anthropology. Anthropo- thank you, that one. Um, which is fascinating because you can actually see drawings and pictures of the Divine Feminine. And, and, and um, there were multiple gods worshipped. Um, I, I think a lot of people... I mean, it's really, really sexy right now in the academic world to talk about the Divine Feminine. Um, and then Margaret Barker uses the extra canonical text. You can find her in the Bible. You've got to look. I mean, it's interesting that the injunction, um, that the verb we are asked to um, use when we engage with the scriptures is to search them. And you can definitely find her. I mean, that, that whole uh, experience, my God is bigger and better than your God with Elijah thing. It's very interesting that the priests of Baal and the priests of Asherah the feminine divine are invited. Who's killed? The priests of Baal. The priests of Asherah are not. So there, there's this strong evidence that there was definitely the worship of the feminine divine in the first first temple period. And 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 I think Margaret Barker is, is is trying to link that then to Mary so that it's not broken. Um, if you see what I mean, she's saying that the early Christians are actually going back to the temple of Solomon to this, the, the pre-600 B.C. temple rather than the, the, the temple that now exists. So, yeah. I'd like to get back to guilt for a second because <laughs> I think it's brilliant and beautiful the way you handle guilt as a proof for agency in the book. It's just <laughs> blew my mind. Um, but you mentioned the question of how we handle sin in our culture. And for me, I converted late in life at age 37. So I had a whole bag that I brought with me. Um, the way that I experienced our church's handling of sin is not, as you describe, it's not ignored. It's 
personalized in the sense that it's personalized between me and who I've sinned against, those that I've harmed in this world and, and he that I've harmed in the other. So for me, I saw it more as a reaction, uh, I guess, by Joseph Smith, in a sense, to Calvinist sort of public shaming and, and sort of uh, aversion to uh, ridicule or whatever that sort of social presence of being sinners in the hands of an angry God was. But for us, I think we carry that around. We just deal with it in very different ways if we're doing it right. Certainly we've got, you know, we have a, a large gospel to live up to, but the, our structures for dealing with guilt and sin, I think, are very healthy um, and deal with the roots of the problem in a different way. So I'm just curious as to what you meant by okay. us hiding sin. Okay, um, I think, you know, one of the things that's feeding into Joseph Smith's theology culturally is this, this incredible spirit of optimism that animates the early 19th century. There's this sense that man is infinitely perfectible, okay? Also, remember that, that the, the religion that is most in the ascendancy in this period is Methodism. And the reason is because Methodism represents this radical alternative to Calvinism. Right? We're not predestined. We're not totally depraved. We actually have a role in our own salvation. That's immensely appealing to people in a, in a democratic culture. Right? And Joseph Smith right, out Wesley's Wesley by taking it to the next step. I mean, what's the very first hymn in the hymn book in 1835? Very first hymn. Know this, that every soul is free. Right? The, the cosmic conflict isn't about the conflict of good versus evil. Right? The war in heaven is about the conflict between agency and non-agency. Right? So... The, 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 the downside of that, I think, is that given perfection as an aspiration, sin is seen as an impediment to that aspiration. Okay? Does that make sense? And yet, you know, Fiona's point has been, no, sin is part of the process. Because that's how we learn to love what is good. And that's how we learn to shun what is evil and embrace the godly life. But the problem in Mormon culture is that, is that sin has been so thoroughly stigmatized that we got to the point in the 1950s where you commonly heard things like, son, if you go on a mission, I'd rather you came home in a pine box than having lost your virtue. What? Yeah. Is there no Christ? <coughs> is there no atonement? I mean, I'm a father, and I can't think of a more appalling thing to say. Right? Because I have, I have children who have sinned, who have sinned grievously. And my gratitude is that they, they, they have access to an atonement and can continue to, to progress and go to the temple and become, right, purified and, and sanctified. So, I, I, I guess in some ways we're kind of schizophrenic about this, right? That, but but the, the, the main problem, I, as I see, is that we have to have more emphasis on the atonement than we do on sinlessness. Because nobody's going to be sinless. And so I think that we have a culture that, that is too embedded in guilt because we're not taught that it's, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Here's how we get past it. That was beautiful, darling. Beautiful. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm captured by this. I very much enjoyed your uh, book uh, by the hand of Mormon, by the way. Um, what you're saying also applies to the other side. Speak not loud, Dave. Not only is the atonement as for me, helping with the sins I have committed. But it also, and it's very clear in Alma 7, and it talks first, 
about how the atonement is for the innocent who can sin against. Mm -hmm. And our church teaches this better than any other I've seen about how the atonement helps the victims as well as the offenders. Beautiful. And I even saw this this week somebody said that the atonement not only satisfies my debt to justice, but it satisfies justice's debt to the victims as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You know, I. I'm grateful for that principle because as a father, I know that one of my prayers has been that the atonement would compensate my children for my shortcomings as their father. I've got a, a question that really isn't mine. Uh, as most of you know, I sent out a little teaser email just before this meeting uh, yesterday, I think it was and quoted a paragraph from uh, the Gibbons' books, and I, and I received a number of responses saying, wow, what a great, what a great statement. And, and, uh, but I did receive one that had some No, read the nice ones. Questions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just basically did. Uh, and I know a way to answer this, but heck, it's much better coming from the horse's mouth. So the... the the paragraph that I quoted, you'll be familiar with it, but for those that didn't get my email, uh, it's the one where you say, oh, you quote from James Stephen, whatever sense we make of this world, uh, whatever value we place upon our lives and relationships, whatever meaning we ultimately give to our joys and agonies, must necessarily be a gesture of faith. Whether we consider the whole a product of impersonal cosmic forces, a malevolent deity, or the benevolent God, depends not on the evidence but on what we choose deliberately and consciously to conclude from the evidence. And then skipping down a, a sentence, it is in fact inescapable. Uh, James Stevens noted that in nearly all the important transactions in life, indeed all transactions, whatever, which have any relation to the future, we have to take a leap in the dark to act upon very imperfect evidence, I believe, to be the same with religious belief. If we decide to leave the questions unanswered, that is a choice. If we waver in our answer, that too is a choice. But whatever choice we make, we make it at our peril. And uh, one of the people that I addressed this to, and a friend of mine, said, I'm not sure if his quoting of James Stevens implies agreement or endorsement, but it is with that quote that I disagree, mainly on the point of being in peril. My feeling is that the whole mess of religion, theology and cosmology, is so confusing and to me, it often seems bent on pushing me away from belief, rather than being reinforcing or even neutral, that any deity worth respecting would not fault any person for choosing not to believe. Thus, if I'm in peril, or if there is actually a God who demands that I process that imperfect evidence in his favor and is willing to punish me for either choosing unbelief, or more accurately, choosing to leave the question unanswered, well, I'd revolt against that God with dignity, of those who stand against tyranny. I take my licks with honor because the punishment would be more noble than the tainted reward of extorted favor. And then he acknowledges that sounds a little dramatic, but how would you respond to that? Well, a couple of things I would say. First of all, I, I think the greatest essay on this topic is The Will to Believe by William James. And he points out that the problem with most agnosticism as it's defended, as it's articulated, is that it's clear that those people who propose or who espouse a form of agnosticism 
have a greater fear of being wrong than they have a hope of finding truth. And I think that's a powerful way to put it. That, that faith requires risk. And it seems to me, not always, and I can't judge individual cases, but it seems to me that a studied stance of non-decision is an avoidance of a moral imperative that requires that we live our lives deliberately. Because we're not, we're not static creatures. We live in a flow of time, which means that every action we engage in is always informed by a set of values that we are implicitly endorsing. Right? So in this regard, I, I buy into Thomas Carlyle's definition of religion. Carlyle says religion is not a set of beliefs we espouse or don't espouse. Religion is a set of values that we are, in fact, living by at this moment. And so that's the sense in which I think that, 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 that uh, Fitzjames is right, that we can't avoid... It by, right? We're living out some values at any given moment. And the question is, are we going to do it deliberately, willfully, and self-consciously? Or do we think that we can absent ourselves from that process, which we, we can't? I'd like to quote, because I haven't got this memorized, is about to memorize cards. I will tell you that I am a child of the century, a child of disbelief and doubt. I am that today and will remain so until the grave. How much terrible torture this thirst for faith has cost me, and cost me even now, which is all the stronger in my soul, the more arguments I can find against it. And yet God sends me sometimes instants when I am completely calm, at those instants I love and feel loved by others, and it is at those instances that I have shaped for, my, for myself a credo, where everything is clear and sacred for me. This credo is very simple. Here it is. To believe that nothing is more beautiful, profound, sympathetic, reasonable, manly, and more powerful than Christ. And I will tell myself with a jealous love not only that there is nothing, but that there cannot be anything higher. Even more, if someone proved to me that Christ is outside truth, and that in reality the truth were outside Christ, that I should prefer to remain with Christ rather than with the truth. And that's Dostoevsky. So, you know, it's just, there is, it, and, and I think that's what he was meaning by at our peril. It's not, you know, yeah, you're going to be. It's, it's like we struggle with these, everything your friend articulated. We struggle with the overwhelming evidence against, and yet something keeps pushing us forward to embrace that which is beautiful and that which is true and that which is lovely. And, and Fyodor Dostoevsky just really, it, this quote resonates with yeah. me because I feel... And I don't think Fitzjames intimated, and I know we certainly weren't intimating, that the peril is the peril of an angry God. Right. Mm -hmm. It's just well, you need that, to make a decision. There, there's a peril of staying in this okay. void, in this vacuum. If you don't move, you will stay static. You have to move one way or the other. And that decision is full of moment and pregnant with possibility for, for your life, for those you love. I mean, there's much that is at stake when you make movement in regards to faith. Right, I, and that's kind of the response I would have given. I think as a lawyer, the way I looked at that was kind of the way I might advise a client who runs a carnival ride. You tell people, pass this gate and get on the ride at your peril. This may fail. It only happened once in, in this century, but 
it might fail and you'll die a horrible death. But on the other hand, you'll have a great time on this Before ride. Horrible death. You you have you you go whatever decision you make is your peril. You either miss miss the ride and miss the fun, or you go on the ride and hope for the best. And I think that may be what he was getting at there that that whatever decision you make to believe or not believe is at your peril. Well, we have, we have a child who is caught in this dilemma. She sees all of these doors, and they're all open, these doors to opportunity. But if she opens one and steps through it, of necessity she cannot go into any of the others, and so she is trapped. She can't move. It's a horrible place to be. <coughs> yes? I would like you to address a little bit he went after the Anglicans with the abomination of the creed and seemed to absolve... No, I didn't go after... God did. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and you've absolved the ecumenical councils. You, 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 you mentioned particularly Nicaea and um, Athanasius. Joseph was rather partial to Catholics, actually. Yeah. If, if you're, if you're going to go that route, then just using those the, the examples that you picked specifically, I'll think of like Homo Oseus, right? How do you deal with that and not say that that's not an abomination? It goes completely counter to the nature of deity. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm not saying that's not an abomination. I'm just saying that that's not the particular ones that were of interest to Joseph Smith, who probably never heard that word, didn't know much about Trinitarian theology. But he did know because he and Parley and Oliver repeatedly quoted the, the phrase, without body parts or passions. So their feeling was, and here I agree with them, that I don't really care, and I, this may put me outside the pale of Mormonism, I don't really care if God has a body. I don't really care about his identity vis-a-vis -vis the Christ. I do care that it matters to him what I do. Oh, yes. And I'll shut up after this. I think um, I, oh, I, oh, I'm oh, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Okay. Let's go here first, first and then you. Okay. I've mentioned this here before, but uh, uh, we use the language of, Mormons use the language of traditional Christianity, and I think what, one of the problems is we mean something radically different. Um, but it seems to me that the language, maybe you could talk a little bit about that, the language affects the way we think about it. And so yes, sort of, here. I'm sorry. Terrell will repeat it. It's okay, so you don't strain your voice. Oh, that's repeat. okay. Just curious about the way that we can use terms that Christians use, but we have a very different meaning than the Christian would associate with the same term. Do you have any terms in particular you're thinking of? Well, not necessarily, but uh, well, we use the omnis, but we don't believe in them. We use the what? The omnis, like omnipresence, omnipotence, and omniscience. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, well, Joseph used them in the, in the lectures on faith, which is the problem. Um, <coughs> Of course, those were canonical, canonical at one point, but then they were removed, and perhaps for that reason. I, I think Mormons do use them. They just define them differently, right? You can say to, to be omniscient is to have all knowledge, or you can say it's to have all knowledge that exists. And that's, you know, the Mormons would generally fall into the, the, the latter category. But I absolutely agree with you that there is a problem of communication across denominational boundaries because we have a different vocabulary and mean very different things by it. And Joseph Smith was horribly... Um, careless in the way he used theological terms to the extent that he did. Um, one minute, for example, he's writing in scripture that the spirit sanctifies and the blood justifies, and the next moment it's the blood that sanctifies and the spirit that, that sanctifies. Now, you don't make those kinds of mistakes if you're a Protestant theologian, but for Joseph Smith, 
right? He's just he's 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 careless in those regards. And I think well, Grace and I would is say internally we're careless as well. I mean, we don't. We the way you talk about something affects the the way you think about it. No, no, you're absolutely right. Um, this goes to Fiona. Earlier you had talked about the three degrees of glory and how they're described usually as a dead end, each one. Um, but you, you contrasted that with eternal progression. Is there a different view than just, you know, you're, you go celestial, you're stuck there? And if so, do you have any sources, early Mormon sources for that? Yes, um, Joseph, Hiram, B.H. Uh, Roberts, Joseph, Hiram, B.H. Roberts, Talmadge, J. Reuben Clark. In fact, pretty much all the way to the mid-20th century, this idea was we will travel through the kingdoms. And to be honest, I was very influenced by um, Rob Bell's book on uh, God, Love Wins. Uh, it was it's an extraordinary book. He's an evangelical. He got a lot of flack of, about that, but it's like he gave me ammunition because he grew up in the same thing. For, for me, being stuck anywhere is being in hell, and quite frankly, that contradicts this whole idea of eternal progression. And what Joseph said about progression, and what J. Reuben Clark said, you know, he said that you know we have eons of time to develop and become like like God, and most of us will need it. And, and I think Joseph would be very unhappy with the incorporation of that hymn in our hymnal because he would have included himself as not walking with gods and not communing with, you know, no wonder people are confused about whether we worship him or not. Um, but, but he would also, he expressed the same thing, this idea of eternal progression, it will take eons of time. It's really only until we get to mid-20th well, like, century... Yeah. Well, with Bruce R. McConkie, actually. But we do have those sources. But we do have the sources. Yeah, because it's it's fabulous. That's why it was. we feel like what we've done has gone back to the beginning. And, and, and a lot of it's been muddled and lost, quite frankly, in our culture. And then a lot of, a lot of um, teachings that we think are, are flagrantly in opposition to those. If it, if it doesn't uplift and it doesn't edify, then and it doesn't resonate in that way, then I think we are bound to reject them. Jay Deverich, and then I think we'll call a halt to the formal questions, but they're going to, uh, Terrell and Fiona have graciously agreed to stay and, and talk, and I know a lot of you like to answer, ask questions personally. Jay? What has been the reception you've received from uh, non-members? Um, well, we, we, the reception among um, LDS has been absolutely phenomenal. This book tends to resonate with people who are in faith crisis or who have had tragedy, like the loss of a child. We have heard recently from uh, the author of The Anti-Romantic Child. She taught at Yale. What is her name, I love? Stephanie Gilmore. Stephanie Gilmore. And she... Um, just love the book and, and just reading her book on the anti-romantic child she she loves romanticism she loves the idea of the pre-existence of the soul and it, it came she had a very difficult child her, herself and um, so it seems to resonate what we're hearing is that members are saying um, they are giving this book to their friends um, happily um, but, but it hasn't had really wide distribution. We, we got heartachingly close. Yes, The we Wall did. Street Journal had a whole article just on this book. It interviewed three theologians and Sherry Dew, and the article was approved and ready to go. We were waiting for it to appear. 
And then the chief editor said, nah, with Romney, we've heard enough about Mormons. And they killed us. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it hasn't had wide distribution outside. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you very, very much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Dialogue Journal podcast series. We'd like to thank our guests today. For more Dialogue podcasts or to comment on this one, please visit DialogueJournal.com. Thank you.